Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Brad, back in L.A. And Spearsy in Florida. And this week, it's time for the Stuck in the 80s Book Club. We have an interview with the biggest 80s fan on the pitch. It's my chat with soccer podcaster and New York Times bestselling author, Roger Bennett. You're a beautiful man. I love what you're doing. I love your passion for an incredible decade that is off maligned. And this deep, deep meaning there, this deep, deep joy, this wonder, this creativity... Uh, this passion and it's lovely to be able to revel in all of this with you yes stuck in the 80s is indeed a beautiful beautiful passion but it's also a podcast can it be both in any case we're happily supported by our listeners now if you want to join us for vip zoom happy hours and get exclusive content including brad's just released road trip playlist go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast it's a moral imperative steve i hear 80s Nation collectively scratching their heads. Who is this guy? And and what is a book? And what is the book about? <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> Roger Bennett is a soccer pundit, and he's the co-host of a podcast I listen to called Men in Blazers, uh, which is also a TV show on NBC Sports. They cover the English Premier League. He tells stories on the podcast all the time about how he grew up wanting to live in America and how he really set his compass by 80s pop culture from the United States. Um, he was a big fan of Don Johnson, Walter Payton and the Chicago Bears, Beastie Boys Ad Rock were some of his kind of spirit guides. His book, Reborn in the USA, was released earlier this summer, and it is just an absolute love letter to the United States. He describes growing up in Liverpool and his coming-of-age journey that led him to an eventual U.S. citizenship. I remember you telling me about this, and literally the next day I was listening to the podcast, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which I haven't listened to in a year. Yeah. And who was the guest that day? Roger Bennett. So the, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I texted you and said, oh my God, Roger Bennett's on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And he was on for 10 minutes and he was, he's fantastic. He, I mean, he has an infectious personality. Yeah. He is a, he's a funny guy. He's a good writer and he's got a lot of great stories. But when he started talking about this book on Men in Blazers, I thought, you know, this guy, he is on our wavelength. And since we have but one other lonely soccer pundit in our Rolodex, if you remember Rolodexes, as you remember books, I reached out to our friend and occasional collaborator, Alexi Lawless, and groveled in front of him to see if he would please make an introduction, which graciously he did, thus this podcast. That's so cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. I still am, like, baffled that Alexi likes the podcast. I just and that he has a stuck in eighty sticker on his computer. But I, I I loved having him on the show the two times he's been on. I wish we could get him on more often. Hint hint. <laughs> Alexi, <laughs> call me. In spite of the fact that the book actually got real press from people like CBS, NPR, the Wall Street Journal, and many, many other legitimate outlets, 
Raj agreed to come on our little podcast. Why? (laughs) We all make choices, some better than others. We talked for almost an hour. I did trim it down a little bit, but he was very generous with his time, and we had a good chat. I tried not to get too much into spoiler realms on the book, so if some of the questions seem a little obtuse, we'll talk a little bit about them at the end of the interview. I have to admit, I'm only halfway through the book, but I listened to the whole interview just the other day, and it's it's a really fun conversation. You could tell that his passion for the 80s is so incredibly genuine and so long-lasting. When he talks about bands and artists that maybe you haven't given a thought to in a while, you will after hearing him make his case for them. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Reborn in the USA author Roger Bennett. Our guest today in the Stuck in the 80s Thunderdome is a man that was, until recently, known primarily as a soccer commentator, the de facto Eeyore of the Men in Blazers podcast team, given to quoting World War I poetry, possessing an online purchase history consisting completely of books, and known to flagellate himself equally over not just Everton losses, but also Everton victories. (laughs) However, however, with the release of his memoir, Reborn in the USA, he has revealed a new side the protagonist of a story that rivals the plot of any 80s teen comedy slash sex romp, a man so simultaneously steeped in and outside of American pop culture in the 1980s that he could utter sentences such as, oh, this is John Cougar Mellencamp, you probably haven't heard of him, with complete and utter conviction. Joining me today, I'm thrilled to welcome soccer pundit, New York Times bestselling author, and American citizen, Roger Bennett, to Stuck in the 80s. Oh, brother. It is a joy to be with you. Just happy you could make some time for us today, Roger. The book is, it's amazing. I've read it, I think, two and a half times. You're a beautiful human being. Is that separate copies purchased or the same one? Oh, oh, well, separate. <laughs> Always separate. You, know, you, you, you don't want to be looking at something someone else has highlighted. So, Roger, the book opens with you sitting at your grandfather's knee, being raised on the dream of living in America. Do you remember the spark that caused that dream to jump from him to you so so strongly? Yeah, I mean, the spark actually took place even before he was born. I grew up, as you can tell by my accent, I am an American that always says that he loves America more than Kenny Powers loves America. But my accent gives away the truth that I was born in Liverpool, England. Magnificent city, but in the 1980s, it was a really dark time. And so I often wondered, how did my family get stranded there and the myth of our family story and there's some truth in that is that my great-grandfather was a kosher butcher headed from Ukraine like millions in the early 1900s for the hog capital of the world Chicago. He sailed in the boat docked in Liverpool and when he saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline He must have thought, oh, we're here. We're in New York. He must have seen Yentl, and he knew that's what it looked like. And he (laughs) debuted in Liverpool. So we became stranded in northwest England as opposed to really making it to the promised land. And my grandfather, as a result of that, you know, it was a dark time in Liverpool. Liverpool's a magnificent city now, just just a remarkable, vibrant, eclectic, diverse place. But back then, unemployment was soaring there was a heroin epidemic. Hope was low on the ground. 
And I'd go over to my grandfather. He would go to America whenever he could. Where you had to fly in those days, like on a tiny plane that would land in Iceland and Greenland and somewhere off Canada to refuel. He'd go, and he brought back this tchotchke, this Statue of Liberty that's now on my desk. This cheap plastic tchotchke, but it didn't look like that to me as a kid. It was on his fireplace, and when things were really miserable. When I was like eight, nine, ten, he'd get it off the fireplace and we'd both go over and stand and look at it solemnly and he'd say, we should have lived there. We should have lived there. And so that's what made me believe I was really in my darkest moments. I shouldn't be there. I'm really an American trapped in an Englishman's body. And that's what I, I told myself to survive. You talk a lot in the book about what you call American soft power. How much did that American soft power fan the flames of that that desire? But 110%. You know, you watch Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, Heart to Heart, Miami Vice, and more. You've got to remember what they were being programmed into. English television, as I write in the book back then, was the three biggest shows. One was called Coronation Street, still massive. EastEnders, still massive. Brookside. One was about working-class misery in Manchester, another working-class misery in London, another working-class misery in Liverpool. And the promise of those shows was, you think your life's crap? Look at these people's misery and shut the hell up. You're doing much better than They were trying to just say, you know, could be worse, it could be worse. And into that reality crashed this slew of American TV shows. I mean, when you watch Charles in Charge, when you watch different strokes oh my god the drummond family when you watch cheers the messages of those shows were just the joy is possible laughter's possible happiness is possible even if it's of the canned laughter variety dallas and dynasty but the problems were of having too much money too many oil wells too many mink coats those are the problems of life when you watched it it looked as if your life was lived in black and white which it was and there was a chance in America of living a life in glorious technicolor. And it just animated everything I knew about confidence, courage, and possibility. And I wanted it. You watch Don Johnson. Oh, my God, a singular human being in Miami Vice. you just like that. I want to be that. Dude lived on a boat with a pet alligator called Elvis. And when I was, I think, was 15... We had to fill in a form that talked about what we wanted to do for careers. We had a class of careers. And I just wrote on mine about my professional goals. I just wrote, I too would like to live on a boat and have a pet alligator called Elvis. So how's that coming? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. What can I tell you? I mean, what I did get off Don Johnson when I watched Miami Vice, this incredible television show, which was really only about narco threats to the Floridian coastal area on the surface in the same way as Animal Farm is really not about horses and pigs in its true depth. Miami Vice, I mean, first of all, when that show crackled onto my television set with that opening gunshot, the way the theme music kicked in and then that high-speed montage of just like beaches, shiny buildings, fast cars, bikinis, more fast cars, bikinis i just remember turning around to my mother i mean our beaches they were just they were polluted they had dead sheep bobbing up and down on uh, on them they were freezing cold and it was miserable i was like what is this what planet is this on and what is that color 
And my mother was like, I think that's called Teal. It's not been invented in Liverpool yet. And you watch that show. You watched Don Johnson. This was a dude who, you know, was wearing periwinkle before any man would wear periwinkle. He was wearing he was wearing pastel. I mean, the guy was so committed to pastels. He even had his office at the, the Miami-Dade Drug Enforcement Agency painted in pastels. I mean, he was all in. And when they would go off to always the gravest threat that had ever hit Miami to a gunfight that ended every single episode and everyone else was strapping on the Kevlar and the helmets and they'd offer one to Don Johnson, he'd be like, no. He said, why would I want, why would I want Kevlar? Why would I want to put protective equipment on when I can go to a shootout that may end in my death looking as good as this? I'm wearing linen pants with pleats, no socks, espadrilles, and a t-shirt with my jacket sleeves rolled up. And I looked at that, I was like, oh my God, the lesson you learned from that man is to always have a singular style. Don't be afraid to be different to those around you and just stick with it no matter what. That's a lesson I got from Don Johnson. It's been about a month since the book came out. Have you heard from any of the people who make appearances in the book? Are you talking about my friends? who Friends, uh, family, schoolmates? Yeah, I heard from tons i mean i will say the response to the book has been so bloody humbling it's been immense it's been i mean it's been i feel like i when the book went to number one on the new york times bestseller list pushing bill o'reilly out of that position i was like said to my wife i was like i think i've killed the publishing industry and then she's like oh i love it i had a good run Guggenheim invented the printing press in like 1450. It was immense. Like for Americans, you know, I wrote this book at a dark time during COVID, during lockdown in Manhattan, a city that I once had the skyline painted on my bedroom wall and and then made that dream of moving there come true and live there. And when COVID crackled across the city and it became ground zero for for the pandemic in this nation for a terrible, you know, a terrible eight weeks, nine weeks, which was just, you know, human darkness. We didn't understand the length or the breadth of the challenge. It just felt deep uncertainty. And as if everything, you know, sports, for instance, which is my everything, just shut down. And so I started to write the book to write a love letter to America and have Americans love reading what a new American says about America is truly humbling. I mean, you asked me about my mates, you know, the ones I heard from first were the ones who were annoyed they're not in it more, <laughs> which is like hilarious. I had a very, very good mate of mine who's in the book, called me up and said, I love it, all those pies, all that living. And then he went a bit quiet. I was like, what's going on? And he said, I'm not in it that much. And I was like, go on, what's going on? Like, I thought people would be embarrassed to be in it, you know. He said, I thought we were better friends, was what he said. And I was like, oh my God, mate, 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 you've got to know. Ultimately, this book was so heavily edited by a very remarkable editor, Carrie Thornton. This is not like I'm Winston Churchill churning out a definitive 12-volume autobiography. It wasn't handwritten in one draft. Yeah, it was like, and then then I went to... uh..." I think part of the strength of the book is that it really moves the narrative. So that's it. But I was quite fascinated. I thought people would be embarrassed to be in the book and instead they're annoyed that they're not in it more. That's really funny. Well, along those lines, are there stories that you wish had made the cut that just didn't fit the arc or didn't fit the framework? I had to so much. When I handed in the first draft, 
And I posted a photograph of myself on Instagram when I popped the book out of what I looked like after that first draft came out. And you look like you'd been run over by a bus. Yeah, it was. I wrote this book. I mean that with all the kindness in my it's heart. A, it's, a very, it's a very generous description. I think I look worse, is the honest truth. I look, I wrote this in a fever dream. I'm, I'm quite a productive person. I like working. I love my work. I'm quite passionate about it. When sports stopped and just my whole everything was just gone. I threw myself instead because nature abhors a vacuum into writing this book. And I think I, I wrote it almost as an insane human being. Every day I just bang away at this book. Really, I'd never saw, and you can see from the photograph, I didn't see sunlight for about, <laughs> I think about three months. I didn't step outside. And then finally I finished the first draft, sent it off to my editor and stumbled outside to see my wife. She took a photograph of me. I'm wearing, funnily enough, a Hershey's t-shirt that I stole when I was a creepy English counsellor on an American summer camp off a six-year-old. Thank you to whoever that was in my bunk. I didn't have many clothes, and a six-year-old gave me that T-shirt. I still wear it. So I was wearing that, which is not a good look for me. I stumbled outside. I was almost translucent. I had a beard that looked like I was making a amateur dramatics version of Tom Hanks' Castaway. So that's it. It was a madness, me writing this book. So there were lots of parts that got edited out. I mean, there was... So much more about the NFL and the role that played in my life, the Chicago Bears. I mean, several chapters. There were just multiple chapters that were carved away. There, there was a whole narrative about chess and the role chess played in my life, competitive chess, that sadly and rightly, correctly, completely correctly, was shaved away. There's whole elements. There were shows that, that were very important to me that got cut out of the book, like Cheers, for instance, was a deeply important television show to me. Watching that show... Woody Harrelson's character, I loved. I loved Norm. Uh, I absolutely adored Norm. I just loved that moment when Norm would come down the stairs and just say, oh, everyone would go, Norm! And yeah, it was on, on a Friday night, that show, probably when I was at my loneliest, at age 12, 13. And I, I remember watching that show and just for half an hour feeling that there was could be a place where everyone knew my name too and everyone, I'd walk in and people would go, Rog! There's a whole chapter about Cheers. There's a number of shows that got kicked to the curve. Thank God. I mean, I think, Brad, it's quite a tight read. And it's all the better for having a great editor. I found it to be almost cinematic at times. The way the story moves from you know character to character, you kind of get handed off from mentor to mentor as the tale grows. I could absolutely picture these in my mind's eye as films. Cast your mind, if you will. Apple TV picks up the option on the book, and they're going to make a limited run series. Now, I've already cast Brian Blessed as Mr. McNally. Oh, God love. Uh, but who who plays Raj? And <sighs> I'm sorry to say Meryl Streep is unavailable. Is she not? So Tilda, Maybe Tilda, Tilda Swinton. Swinton. I'd love Swinton. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd like someone very versatile to play me. I mean, by the way, the, so the mentor that you've just mentioned, Brian Blessed, Mr. McNally, one of the joys of doing a book about your past is to make people who've passed away uh, live again and to be back in public parlance and and i'm so grateful for just for that alone i mean there's many things i've loved about doing this book the ability to support american indie bookstores has been an amazing part of this like we asked our men and blazers fans if they could to buy the book at an american indie and so many thousands have and it's oh, it's really 
It's amazing. But to make people who passed away live again, this man was a giant. Many of you listeners will have had one teacher who really got you, understood you, inspired you. Mr. McNally was mine. He was a massive man with a beard, huge guy. And I went to an awful school which was like Grey Gardens. It was just run by sadists, old pe- old men who would just beat the crap out of all of their pupils constantly. It was quite funny. You'd go home bleeding and like, your mum wouldn't be like, oh my God, what happened to you? Instead, she'd be like, oh, Judy, were you naughty today, love? And uh, you'd be like, yeah. And Mr. McNally was an amazing man who instead of like just hating his charges, genuinely loved them. Taught us how to rethink. That was his thing. Like we, we weren't meant to have ideas. This was England. We were meant to just follow orders. And he taught us how to think freely, to believe, to try and develop our own individual passions and then follow them. And all of that came from an amazing year he'd had in America on the Cape, which he he insisted on calling the card. He took about the... I was just on Boston Public Radio on Friday and all they wanted to talk about was the card. I said to them, he died 10 years ago, Mr. McNally, and I wrote to his widow and she wrote a beautiful letter back where she said, I talked about how this was a human being who knew how to treat us like men, but also knew when to treat us like boys, which was really important. And she wrote back a beautiful letter and she said, I'm so grateful to hear your memories because Chris was a giant, but I already feel now he's dead that his memory's gone with him. And so to, you know, be on Boston Public Radio talking about the card again and have so many people tweet me that, hey, I'm driving to the card right now. It's just so thrilling to bring these from my grandfather, Sam, who I was very close to, to bring his memory back to life. But you want to know who would play me? All I can say is, and this is really a game for your listeners rather than me, because I know how Hollywood works and I try and stay out of all those machinations and, and let people who know what they're doing do what they're doing. But... When you get blurbs for the book, I try to turn to people I really respect and admire. And one of them is Mina Kimes, the NFL analyst from ESPN. And she uh, looked at the book and just texted me. She said, oh, my God, childhood Rog looks just like Millie Bobby Brown. (laughs) She'd be really good, too. (laughs) So one of those, Meryl Streep, Tilda Swinton, Millie Bobby Brown. Well, I'll make some calls when I get back to L.A. There's a a critical point in the book which your parents agreed to send you to Chicago for a summer if you got good enough grades. The standard, (laughs) you know, carrot extended in front of you. I have to think, having raised some kids myself, were there any grades that were close? Were there close shaves? Was there a a test that it hinged on that that kept you from from Chicago or were you just laser focused? So English education, uh, and it may have changed since then, but when I was a kid, it's so ridiculous. You study for years and then everything is on finals. So when you are 15, you do this a month of brutal exams, terrifying, terrifying exams. And your whole future depends on your results, which you get in one day. This is not an ongoing grade process. And then, by the way, you narrow down to just three subjects to do when you're 16 and 17. And again, at the end of those two years, you then sit exams for a terrifying two weeks and then get one set of grades that determines your future. So this was not an ongoing interaction. This was a, you must get these grades, and then I smashed it. So I'd never worked harder. If it was a carrot, my God, I ate a lot of carrot. 
just smashed it. It was never in good. Once it was an offer to go to Chicago, I cannot think. Like, if my dad had been like, you can either go to Chicago or pilot the first human craft to Venus and Mars, I'd be like, Chicago, bro. Let's do it. It's not an effort. Let's do this thing. Yeah. What was on your bucket list for that trip? What did you envision doing? Okay. I mean, I, I've read the book, so I know what you did do. It's a beautiful time to ask me that question because this weekend I am about to take my oldest son, Samson, to Chicago for the first time. This weekend, Aww. I'm going to go and throw out the first pitch at my beloved White Sox, which is always just like the honor of my lifetime to have been a kid that went to old Comiskey and just was thrilled by baseball to now go and take my own kid there and go and fling a ball off the mound really badly it's just it's the joy of a lifetime so i've had to think it through for him like what do i want to take him to where the hell are we going all that crap and the honest truth is when i was i knew that she you know i've become obsessed with chicago because my great grandpa was meant to go there i had followed the chicago bears obsessively from afar in the most bizarre way which was detailed in the book i used to call up Chicagoans, random Chicago 312 numbers during games and have just random strangers update me on the score because this is pre-internet and it wasn't on television in England. But other than that, you're forcing me to think, what did I know of Chicago before I went? And the honest truth was, I had no idea. My dad gave me a book about how Americans are different to British people. And and the the book had things like, Americans like to walk on the right side of the pavement. They are very orderly on the street. They don't like it when there's chaos on the pavement. There's one great one, which is when the checkout person at the supermarket says, how are you? She doesn't really want to know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Because like, English people never ask. And when they do, you get, you, you're allowed to moan to them. Well, I'm not very good. My back's not very good. The weather's really terrible. It's not been very good. My son, he's a very annoying boy. He's not a good boy. So like when the checkout person says, how are you? You just went to say, great, how are you? That, so, that's, so I knew that crap. Uh, I knew there were 100 cents in the dollar. I was well versed on that. I didn't know what a dollar was in English pounds. But, I don't, you know, I'd seen Molly Ringwald. I'd seen... John Hughes movie. So you were John Hughes prep. Yeah, I was essentially. And that was what was so amazing about landing in Chicago. I write in the book that the heat totally threw me for a loop. I didn't know that my lungs could operate without, without dampness. The reality is, other than expecting there to be supermodels that I could bring to life in my own house at a party and just like good guys and jocks and stoners and uh, and freaky freaks and geeks and all that stuff. That I knew really well. I expected that crap, but I didn't know, like, like I wasn't like, oh my God, can't wait to go up the Sears Tower. Can't wait to see the Art Institute. That came out after, Ferris Bueller came out about six to seven weeks after I got back from Chicago. And all I can tell you um, is that um, when it came out, I didn't see it as a comedy at all. It almost seemed like a documentary. We were drinking beers at Wrigley Field and going to the Art Institute of Chicago and going up the Sears Tower. And like that was what, and being on the beach and, you know, drinking malteds at Ed DeBevick's. We did all that crap, Arby's, ramming, you know, we inhaled every moment. And so I had, the expectations were just to be, have my mind blown. I felt on the plane over, and I write this in the book, I was about to enter my own John Hughes movie, be my own protagonist. And what I didn't know 
was would I be like Duckman, just like a impotent, failed, quirky character? Or would I be Andrew McCarthy? Or would I be, you know, one of the other fringe characters that are no longer... Actually, when you watch those movies with your kids, you see how horrific so much of that. Yeah, some of it doesn't really weather very well. <laughs> but that's how I felt. Actually, now that you mention it, I remember thinking when reading the book, there's a stretch where you describe one of your friend's houses. He lives in Cameron's house from Ferris Bueller. You know, that's funny. There was a, so the, it's so true. My editor's note was, you can't put that in. You've just ripped off Ferris Bueller. Oh. Um, I, was, I didn't like rip that off. That was exactly what that house was like. It was a modernist architecture, the like of which I'd never seen. Because if you've been to England, you know what housing stock looks like. And oh my God, this house, I remember it being totally wood-covered and ravine and And again, when Ferris Bueller came out, I was like, I wasn't like, oh my God, Cameron's house is cool. I was like, yep, been there in every regard. But that house was just like the pool was, I've never, still to this day, and I've traveled a lot in the world and seen a lot of things. In my imagination, that pool was the coolest pool. The sauna was the most lavish, everything. God, Chicago. My son's name is Cameron, and nobody believes me when I tell them that I did not name him after a character in a John Hughes movie intentionally. (laughs) He was amazing. Loved Cameron. But I did realize after watching Ferris Bueller, I'd been a Cameron. I I mean, I write this in the book. I'd been a Cameron in life, allowing things to passively take place around me and reacting to them. And I wanted to be more of a Ferris, more of a proactive instigator. Hard-hitting Chicago question here for you. What is the taste of Chicago? Arby's or Oreos? For me? Yes. You mean, could I write about both of them? I write extensively about both of them. <sighs> yeah, these. so the taste of Chicago is really Pequod's pizza. Uh, deep, well, yes, deep, deep, clearly. Deep dish where it's so deep and it's so dish that I believe the whole of life's secrets are contained between crust and top. I mean, for me, when I look back on it, it really was Arby's, which is hilarious to me. I wrote a lot about Arby's. We we went on day one when I arrived and I constantly urged them to take me back. I want that waxy paper. I want to open that steaming beef dip. I want to, oh, the gravy. And I did, I write in the book that when I took my first bite, it tasted of democracy and freedom and I was ready to eat my fill. God love Arby's. I mean, they, they've been, I think I may have been the best thing that's happened to Arby's in a while. <laughs> yeah, they're they're having to restock their horsey sauce barrels. Respect. Let's get to some more 80s content here. You talk a lot about American music that you discovered and purchased without a listen, I might add. Yeah. Thanks to positive reviews in Rolling Stone magazine. And, and I mean, clearly we hear about the things that you liked. Were there were there things that you bought that were like, oh my gosh, let me get rid of this? Wow. No, that's so great. I write the list in my book of like, a, I, I did build a playlist. I put it out on Spotify. And the funny thing about music was I used to subscribe to Rolling Stone magazine. You've got to understand in those days before the internet, television shows and movies would take often up to a year before they would ever come out. There was just a lag between release. And so they'd write about the cover would be like, Tom Cruise, Top Gun, he's the new star of Hollywood. I'd look at this person and be like, great, that's not helpful to me. I'm not going to know what Tom Cruise is, nor (laughs) Top Gun for at least another year. And some of the shows never even, you know, they'd write a lot about Saturday Night Live, is the format dead? Has it lived beyond its purpose? But like, don't know what that is. Don't know what stand-up comedy is. Don't know what improv is. Wouldn't know. But music, they do the music reviews 
And that was actionable. I could go to my local record store, Penny Lane Records. Yes, the Penny Lane. And they could order special order from America. And within four weeks, they could get that cassette tape into my hands. David Frick was always the reviewer that I used to love. And if you're really into music, you'll know David Frick. And he lived by me on the Upper West Side. He's a very distinctive looking person. He's not changed in about 50 years. He still looks the same. And whenever I see him buying bananas in Westside Market, it's like I, it's like genuinely I've stumbled upon God himself. And so whatever he reviewed, I would purchase. Or I'd look at the back, the college charts was always the one I loved. I realized that everything I listen to makes no sense from an American perspective. It spans many musical genres from alternative to hip-hop to country and blues. But when I listened to it, all of it, well, all of it did two things. Number one, I had the single pleasure, and many of your listeners will feel this, of listening to something that no one else was listening to. There was a band I loved called The Windbreakers. I doubt there was many people that listened to The Windbreakers in America, but I knew I had the only copy of The Windbreakers cassette. Jason and the Scorchers. There was not a lot of Jason and the Scorchers fans in England. There just weren't. Number one, there was a singularity to it, which I believe for any kid that age, 16, 17, the urge to feel different. And then the second thing was, to me, the sound, all of them, they just sounded American. You know, I could listen back to back, wrap it up by the fabulous Thunderbirds, uh, Guadalcanal Diary, I loved, Lone Justice, Boogie Down Productions, The Long Riders, Marvin Gaye, Husker Du, The Violent Femmes, The Talking Heads, The Replacements, Eric B and Rakim. Although those are all over the place, you know, the Hooters, I thought was sad. I got asked to do a, to write a piece about my love of the Hooters when the Hooters turned like 40 or 50 or something. Who knows? I wrote when I heard the, what's the name of that little instrument they used to blow? Oh, it's a melodica. When I hear that melodica, I'd start crying. It just felt like freedom of possibility. Music was actionable and I genuinely devoured it. Stevie Wonder, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Georgia Satellites. Dwight Yoakam devoured it all. You talk a little bit in the book about John Cougar Mellencamp, and you seem to see him as an American prophet to those of us who grew up in America. He was he was a rocker, but he was kind of just another Midwest rocker. Is there an English artist that Americans revere that you, as you know, in England, were like, hmm, big deal? Yeah, when I mm. came over here, that was funny. Um, like, here... When I came over when I was 15, the Stones were so much bigger in America than they were in England. Uh, Pink Floyd. I mean, by the way, both are now reappreciated in England. But they're in that soft spot where they, they'd fallen away. The hoop. And I remember coming over and all anyone wanted to ask me, like, hey, have you seen the Stones? I was like, why? It would be like, why, the, why would I see Why would the, I go see my why, parents' why, band? Yeah, exactly. I'd be like, really? And that, so that was fascinating. But I want to be clear with you. I do challenge that. John Cougar, Mellencamp, Erasure. I think the one album that I do write about in depth is Scarecrow. And I think that album at the time, when he also got involved in Farm Aid in such a massive way, I think John Mellencamp's career arc has been one of which you describe as just another guy. But there was a moment, and when that album came out, it was so critically... This is the man that started off as a, you know, a, a cheesy teen rocker, Cougar, you know, the, the Cougar era. And he battled back to his name and then dropped a couple of incredible classics and then dropped one 
unbelievable album. I mean, I happen to have, believe that the album that came after it was also a slice of magic. And please don't at me, Mellencamp fans, because if, <laughs> if you love Mellencamp, I am so happy for you in every regard. If you're listening, you love him, then then that's just magic. This is just my opinion. I believe there was a, because I bought them all and listened to them less and less. There was just a depreciating return on each album to each album until he lost his way and I mean, the funny thing about him is, he, you know, the Scarecrow album was about reclaiming small town America and how he just wanted to live in a small town. And ultimately, the, his albums became worse when his life actually went against that grain. But that album, that album Scarecrow, the song in particular that really impacted me was Minutes to Memories. I used to get a bus home every night from school and it was just a bus filled with fart and violence. It was just packed with many schools on it together all of whom wanted to destroy people who went to my school. On this bus, I would put my head against the window, put up on my red Walkman, minutes to memories. I'm on the Greyhound 30 miles beyond Jamestown. And I I would just be transported away. And I would believe that I too one day could sit on a Greyhound bus and have an old man impart life wisdom to me that would shape my life and make it different. I could listen to it or not, like Mellencamp says. I also love songs that just rock out at the end where the singer's too angry to sing anymore Congy's giving you all he can give you he or she is giving you and so the band just take over step up and rock out minutes to memories is one of the most perfect and powerful songs that whole album is a is a slice of human wonder and i am so bloody grateful to to mellencamp for dropping it when i needed it i think you've just put your finger on why i am not a big john cougar mellencamp fan because i lived in one of those small towns and i could not wait to get the hell out the source material wasn't going to connect with me. I'll, I will go back and listen to it now. Maybe you like Mellencamp's later work. I live in an incredible part of Soho. I live with Meg Ryan. It's awesome. Yeah. Living the dream. Happiness. Living the dream. You find it many pathways. One of the things that we talk a lot about, especially in July every year, is Live Aid. And as Americans, we tend to mythologize the London Live Aid set. Do you have those same kind of associations with the Philadelphia set? Or was Live Aid even a thing that you cared about in Liverpool? <laughs> That's so funny. So Live Aid does not take place in my book. The big concert that really made a mark, I hope we'll chat about, is the Mandela birthday concert, which made Tracy Chapman a global star. But Live Aid does not take place in my book for a great reason, is that I went to a military school and we went to military camp in the summer and I was on camp and missed the whole of Live Aid. So I was on manoeuvres in the Isle of Man, I think it was, just in a damp field with huge blisters, having just absolutely been shot at by real soldiers pretending to be the enemy. And I knew Live Aid was going on and it killed me to miss that. It killed me to miss that. I missed every single bloody second. And then Rolling Stone would obviously come when I got back and it would describe everything and including the great line that Bob Geldof, when the Hooters came on, he went ballistic. He's like, who the fuck are the Hooters? Was his great quote. In my head, I was like, how are you not the Hooters, Geldof? They're amazing. Nervous Nights is one of the great albums of all time. So I missed it. I missed Bloody Live Aid. You're making me feel better because I miss Live Aid because I was on a bus with my church group. But that's way better than getting shot at by people. So so that's good stuff. What can I tell you? It's all Bill's yeah. character or not. That's true. You can get the DVDs now. You can watch most of it. Are there bands that you've discovered since the 80s that you are surprised that you didn't know about then? You mean bands who were big in the 80s whose work I've reappreciated? Or that you've discovered. Like, I'll be straight with you. I had never heard a Guadalcanal Diary song in my life. 
and I heard that song on your playlist, and like, why have I not been listening to this? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, they were an amazing band. They were out of Athens, Georgia. Very, very early REM sound. Part of the it. Athens music scene, and they were just there was a recent. I wish I could remember the name. I just read an incredible history of the Athens, Georgia music scene. I'm looking at it in a far corner of my bookshelf. Which was amazing. There were one of hundreds did not make it, but I have all of their albums and I still listen to them. Have I discovered any 80s music? You know, the answer is no. All of this stuff I listen to all the bloody time. I listen to everything. And music, I had a fairly encyclopedic understanding of music at the time. And now listening to it is, most of it is about the joy of the emotions that it allows to you to, the emotional memory is a lot of how I listen to music. So so when I listen to 80s stuff, not a lot of room for, for new for, for new, new things. Yeah. No, I get that. One last music question. Okay. Can you explain Robbie Williams to me? I do not understand Robbie Williams. Robbie Williams is just a, a charming English geezer. God, there's smarter people to talk to than me. But Robbie Williams was never meant to be the one that made it out of that band, and he was the one. And Robbie Williams, what does he prove to you? It's that talent is is really important. He has it. There's arguably more talented members of the band, but character and charisma and and ultimately vulnerability and honesty about that vulnerability counts so much more. Robbie Williams, just from an English person's perspective, I don't know how he was experienced over here in america because i never we've never to heard him. of him that's why i asked uh, but my god just don't understand it. my god he had all of that he's just he's just a proper english geezer okay well that's that's good to have some framework for that what was and what is now your favorite 80s movie has that changed oh yeah i'm a fairly dark man when it comes to movies the movies uh, that i go back i mean the funny thing is about 80s movies so I have lots of children and during lockdown, like many of your listeners, I spent a lot of time trying to use that time to show them movies that were important to me when I was their age. And it's a disastrous pursuit of just deep, <laughs> deep, 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 deep humiliation and owning yourself. You know, the first one I ever watched with my kids was Trading Places, which is one of the greatest, greatest comedies of all time and a deeply definitive movie for me my son's first r-rated movie yeah you know probably first pair of breasts probably that and totally gratuitous when he watched the yeah, movie again like, that's a thing that can happen it was, but it was just like so i mean it's so gratuitous jamie lee curtis god bless playing the prostitute with a heart of gold you sleep on the couch we didn't even get there we watched for an hour with my two oldest boys who were both fairly forgiving neither of them laughed for 60 straight minutes and then my second one who's really quite thoughtful and empathetic so he i'm guessing my older older one delegated it to him he just paused the video after an hour and just said dad i was like what's up bro then i was laughing all the way through i can walk i can walk i said what's up bro he goes when does this get funny (laughs) which was just like the most crushing and cutting statement and i learned really quickly how badly so many of these movies in a tiktok era where you have to land a joke in inside the first six seconds or less to keep the viewer watching so many of the movies we grew up with the joke took minutes to get to the scenes were endless 
and the shots were ridiculous and the camera doesn't move in a lot of John Hughes movies. He just plants it and nothing happens. And never mind the, the I mean, the, the identity politics, the sexual politics are just absolutely toxic from today's perspective. A strain of this lockdown, there's been obviously great human loss and just dark. So this is nothing compared to that. One of the tiny minor notes in it has been just how crap all of the movies that that define me are from today's perspective. Must have aged better. And I watched Breakfast Club with my kids when they were probably 13, and they sat through it. And at the end of it, I, I looked at them and said, you know, what do you think? I have twins. Yeah. And they looked at me, and my daughter looks at me and says, well, that got dark. I think they felt that that had some re- resemblance to the life that they understood. I mean, I understand the pacing is a problem in 80s movies for sure, and yeah. comedy doesn't translate. I think The Breakfast Club is one that holds up in that it holds interest. The one, funny enough, the one movie that really did land and they both loved and they really related to was Say Anything. Lloyd Doblet is still an incredible anti-hero. Interesting. I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. That movie, that character, bizarrely, and it almost offered it with fear and trepidation at that point to hit a home run. When I've been batting, like, yeah, that's what it felt like. I just smacked a grand slam home run when I was batting 0 90 or something. It was incredible. So thank you, Cusack. Yeah, I've decided in my old age that Footloose is not about kids being able to dance, but about the preacher growing as a person. And when you see it from that perspective, it's a very different movie. That's fair. That's so fair. Watch Readers of the Lost Ark at your peril. That's actually a comedy to them. They thought that was absolutely hilarious. Nothing has aged well. Apart from Cusack. So in the book, you mentioned that your membership in the Liverpool College Breaking Crew, which I always assumed was a throwaway joke when you mentioned it in Men in Blazers, hinged on your possession <laughs> of an instructional video that you picked up in Chicago. Are you, Roger Bennett, asking me to believe that you bought a PAL videotape in Chicago? I got it converted. Oh! There was a news agent near us where you could convert videos. I think mostly it was a pornographic based uh, service i assume that my news agent offered but i was able to convert that one video and it was it did me a solid boy i thought i had you there i thought i had you ah okay my one last question for you here at stuck in the 80s we have built on the frame of a 1969 triumph spitfire a podcast time machine if i could offer you a seat on this time machine to return to the 1980s to Experience an event, see a concert, right or wrong, perceived or otherwise. How would you use that trip? Wow, that's an incredible question. Can do anything. Anything. Wow. Wow, that's really... The one that came to mind first and second and third would be the person that ultimately truly saved me in every regard was Tracy Chapman. And her debut album played a massive, massive role in my life from a perspective in Liverpool. I heard it by chance on a late night television show and it just, her sound. I mean, my teacher actually was the one who gave me her first CD, Mr. McNally, I talked about earlier. It was amazing, her message, her vulnerability, her authenticity, the simplicity of the sound, the lyricism. So I adored her and then she played and became an overnight sensation at the Mandela birthday concert. Stevie Wonder was about to go on as the headliner. She played earlier in the day as just a filler. She was a young artist. 
And then Stevie Wonder synthesizers blew up and they just threw her on because she was the one act that had an acoustic guitar. And so in prime time, this performer no one knew gets thrown back on. I loved her already. She was my favourite. 72,000 drunk English people wanted to hear I just called to say I love you. They started chanting for Stevie Wonder. And you should look at this on YouTube because it's the most amazing performance because she comes on in a black roll neck, just a guitar. She's terrified. And she starts playing that mystical beginning to her song. And she draws strength from her own lyricism. And she turns Wembley, this angry, seething, awful Wembley, into a the most intimate venue possible. I would like to go back. You know, the lines, I had a feeling I could be someone. Overnight she was. She was a global sensation. And what's amazing about our own story is that months before she was busking for coins in Cambridge and I would like to go back in time to have seen her play that material when no one knew who she was I'd love to go back and see Tracy Chapman at the very beginning when she was on the streets just playing that guitar with a guitar case in front of her and just just working on that raw powerful poetic material that is a very good answer. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. When I heard you start talking about the book, I thought to myself, this guy's speaking our language. Uh, but when I read it, it's, it's more than that. I can't stop thinking about the story. Uh, congratulations on your debut at the top of the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. That's amazing. Good luck to you with this book and whatever else may follow. You're a beautiful man. I love what you're doing. I love your passion for an incredible decade that is off maligned and there's deep deep meaning there this deep deep joy this wonder this creativity uh, this passion and it's lovely to be able to revel in all of this with you brad that interview is when i heard it the first time i texted you and i was just like amazing i mean it's just so proud of you you did a great job i mean it must it's tough to interview your heroes and you did a fantastic job you were very helpful helping me get ready for it and uh, you know every now and then when you send a boy to do a man's work it turns out okay people think these interviews are oh you must love doing interviews i, I do but man the, the the prep work and the the nervous energy and the stress that you go through before an interview is it's it's real well and you know steve helped bring me back to earth i had this list of just the wonkiest corner case questions that you can even imagine i mean the stuff that made it into the interview even some of that is pretty wonky but steve was like no you need to ask him some like normal human being stuff so he could talk about things which was very helpful uh but enough about that the book i really think if you enjoy this podcast i really think you will like this book it's a ton of fun I find the writing really funny, uh, and the story moves along from stage to stage, story to story. He has this kind of sequence that I picked up on of moves through mentors, and he moves through what I call muses, these the females in his life that kind of provide him with some perspective and guidance and other things along the way. That I, I really enjoyed reading it. The interesting thing when I was reading it, I, I was doing it at the gym, you know, as I'm, you know, frantically trying to get back into better shape. And so maybe every seven minutes, I would just stumble on the treadmill and just burst out laughing at some story he's told. In the interview, I talk about how I found the book to be very cinematic in places, but it really does have an 80s flair to it. There's stuff that would not be out of place on the deleted scenes of the Can't Buy Me Love 25th Anniversary DVD. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Let me ask you a question about the taste of Chicago, because I know you asked him at one point 
about what's the real taste of Chicago. And I think about, I, I've been to Chicago maybe a half dozen times, and you mentioned Oreos and Arby's, which to me, like, I make no sense at all, but there, I must be missing something. I must not be up to that part of the book <laughs> Yeah, yet. that was a callback to the book. In the book, he spends a summer or part of a summer in Chicago visiting a friend, and those are the two things that he talks about in the book is going to Arby's and wanting to go back to Arby's as often as he possibly could and coming back to the UK with a giant pack of Oreos that he you know, carefully rationed out over the, you know, the next few months. That question out of context makes zero sense. He's absolutely right. The actual taste of Chicago is clearly deep dish pizza. And if you disagree with me, you know, we'll have to talk. I thought it was kind of impressive that you went an hour and you really didn't talk all that much about soccer. Yeah, I did that on purpose. I really didn't want to talk to him about soccer because while I would love to sit and chat with Roger Bennett about soccer, maybe not of general interest. The other topic I wanted to get into a little bit and just didn't find a way to do it is I really think that when he talks about his, what would you say, middle school, school days? Yeah. It's it's amazing. It's like a cross between... A Harry Potter movie and a prison movie. <laughs> yeah, that's that's perfect. I, th- those were the scenes that that had me like lose. To be clear, I'm I'm listening to the audio version, so I hear him, you know, regale us with these stories in his Liverpudlian accent about his classmate going over the pummel horse and leaving a steaming load behind him, and I I couldn't speak for like. 15 minutes after that 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 part of the book like is that for real you know they have a head boy and there's a you know i just it's like wow this is amazing there's definitely a, a culture disconnect between the u.s and and the uk when it comes to schooling mm-hmm. we just i mean they have their way of doing it we have our way of doing it and i don't know that we'll ever see eye to eye or understand it yeah and that's okay you know what else would be a real disconnect right about now <laughs> The Suggies. Hey, it's time for listener mailbag. We haven't had too many of these lately, but it seems like they're starting to pile up. And I feel bad. It's just we've had these really long shows lately, and we just don't want to. Don't want to burden you with all this extra talking, <laughs> yeah. blah, blah, blah. It's bad enough that you have to listen to us, but then to listen to somebody else's words while we read them, is just that's torture. It's cruel. The thing that's weird is. When we start getting into left field, which we did the last show with Chuck Coverley, we talked about pork pork rolls, was it? Or Taylor, Taylor ham. ham. Taylor rolls. Make everybody mad and call it call it Taylor rolls. <laughs> he was talking about that. And I got an email uh, from somebody who used to live in Philly who now lives in Florida and said, Steve, you can buy this stuff at Publix. <gasps> it's, I know how you love Publix. I do. I'm there like three times a week. Uh Go to Publix. It's right above where they have the hot dogs. I'm like, I know the hot dog area of Publix very, <laughs> very well. Uh, the UPC codes are out of order on these products. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I do not remember seeing, you know, I, I just wouldn't have seen it. I didn't even know. I wouldn't have known even what it was until last week. But Chuck brought it up. I bought it after finding out that it was here. And I spent the weekend trying to figure out how to make it so, such that it was actually edible. Still working on it. Okay. I'm, I'm told I didn't fry it enough. Mm, but, okay. but this is what happens. We get on these tangents, and the next thing you know, my cholesterol level goes through the roof. Yeah, and, you, uh, you don't want to serve pork medium rare. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. Well, it's bologna. This, this, it's, it looks like bologna. 
It looks like slices of bologna. Is what you're pissing stuff. off a huge chunk of the of the United States right no, now. No, no. They they even they have to fess up that it looks like bologna. Okay, but it tastes more like the bastard love child of bologna and ham or something. I, I had to laugh. You sent me a picture of the package, and the packaging says approximately eight slices. Like, we're not really <laughs> sure how much we're going to jam in here, but it's somewhere around eight it's, slices. I've, I've got it, but I'm not. I'm not touching it again until after my next doctor visit. So <laughs> it's there. It's hopefully. I trust that that stuff's going to stay okay for a while. Anyway, we we di- did. We again, have a letter. We, did we have a letter. We had a letter. Why don't you read it? This letter is from. Uh, we, we had a, a, a nice back and forth with him. This is from Kyle Beatty in Canada. Okay, here we go. go. Ahead, Kyle writes to the stuck in the '80s guys. Hello, hello. I'd like to start off with saying thank you for your podcast. 2020 was terrible for me at different points, but your podcast really helped me weather the storms. It's still hard, but 2021 has been a much better year for me and my family. I currently work at a youth center in my city of Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada. Programming has been tough because we have to do things differently than before. I run the breakfast program for youth 13 to 25, but we are serving outdoors with safety protocols in place. Since we're outside, we now serve people up to 29 years old. Most of the youth we serve are vulnerable youth or youth who just need a hand up. We do meal programs, job programs, a bank. We help with addictions where we can, and we try to help them get mental health treatment as well. On Fridays, we do a Name That Tune contest, and I've been playing a lot of 80s songs. Youth are loving the 80s music. Some know the 80s music, but most don't. They have been asking me where they can learn more about the 80s, so I tell them about Stuck in the 80s. Yeah, boy. A lot of them come back thanking me for showing them the podcast. Now the kids are asking me to do an 80s-themed movie party once we're allowed to have everyone in the building again. That's where you come in, because they wanted me to ask Stuck in the 80s for four movies from the 80s that they should watch for this party. Remember, the youth that come in when we are reopened are between 13 and 25 years old. I hope you can help. Thanks for all your hard work. As always, Stuck in the 80s, Kyle Steeltown Beatty. Wow, four movies. So... We we emailed back and forth with Kyle, and I I sent him a couple t shirts to give out, stuck in these t shirts to give out nice. for the the movie party. Uh, but we had a hard time narrowing it down to four because that age range thirteen to yeah, twenty five that's a big window. You want something very different at thirteen than you do at twenty five. Uh, I I think we've made that clear over sixteen years of podcasting. Fact check Spearsy. Yeah, so I think among the ones we sent were Tron, you know, that was Brad's Of course, I had, to, I had to throw it in there. You know, just I, I can't, it's 90 minutes long, it's short, it's a complete <laughs> time capsule of what we thought computers might be able to do, and, and it's silly, so. I have a hard time believing they'll understand at all what's going on, but, but God bless them. They send the orange into the computer, then they send the man into the computer, and then the orange turns into the man, and the man eats the orange, and then he comes out of the computer. Literally only one of those things happens. Anyway, <laughs> go back to your list. I'll go back to Ra- my corner. Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, which was something you – I can't believe you you had all the really obvious ones that I should have thought about. Uh, you, you also said Ghostbusters, Princess Bride, big, all fantastic. I, I got all weird and chose uh, Goonies, Stand By Me, and Weird Science. <laughs> Moon over Parador. <laughs> yeah, I think I suggested that you swap in Ferris for Weird Science. Well, I was just trying to think of something that was more like what – Worked for the 13 to 15 range. Right. Yeah. And as far as John Hughes goes. So something without any nudity. Oh, but, but there um, is nudity in Weird Science. 
Uh, it's very brief. It's, it's very brief. It's at the party when the girl playing the piano gets sucked up the oh, the fireplace. Okay. But well, sorry, kids. <laughs> first her clothes go, and then she follows. Okay, well, kids, when the girl goes up the fireplace, everyone shut your eyes for about five seconds. <sighs> anyway, uh, Kyle, hope you have a good movie night with the kids. Glad we could help. Thanks for turning them on to Stuck in the 80s. Um, if anyone ever wants to write us a letter, you know the address by now. It's podcast at sit80s.com. Hey, it's our new seggy Stuck in the Arcade, where we play a snippet of an arcade game from the 80s, and you email in and complain that it's too hard for you to answer. Yeah. So far, it's working out brilliantly. I'm telling you. I'm sitting here thinking, stuck in the arcade, like, I wouldn't mind spending a night locked in the arcade. That would be pretty awesome. Did you ever have things when you were growing up where they, you went to, like, the like the museum and spent the night? Uh, I don't think I remember spending the night. Not, like, my kids did stuff like that, but I never got to do anything that fun. That's there, what happens when you was, live in the sticks. Oh. There was a place in Columbus, Ohio called... Center of Science and Industry. I think I talked about this I on the podcast I feel like we've once. talked about your t-shirt that uh, the future wife ding, got you. <laughs> yes. She got me a, a, a circa 1970s uh, COSI shirt. So COSI was the Center of Science and Industry in Columbus. And back then, I think I was in Y Indian Guides. Okay, sure. And so we would go, they would have a night, like a Saturday night where we would go and we'd, we'd eat dinner there, like like there'd be a pizza party and then you had like a sleeping bag that you just kind of rolled out wherever you wanted to roll it out. And I just remember you could wander through the exhibits all night long, but it was freaky because there were, there were like some like giant sized exhibits of a working heart and stuff like that. So you'd be like walking around. There's just, you just don't. Yeah. Well, if it's my heart, it's more like, but we had that. I think, um, Seems like there was another place where he did that, but that was a thing. I, I I don't wonder if they still do that. I bet they do. Yeah. I mean, maybe not right now, but <laughs> yeah. Here, kids, <laughs> walk around in your little self-contained bubbles like uh, John Travolta and the boy in the plastic bubble. Anyway, here we go. See, this is what happens. We don't get the show done. I blame myself. From a few shows ago, here was the mystery arcade sound. That's elevator action. Wow, I, I didn't know that one. I, I got to admit, I, I never played elevator action. I didn't either. That was chosen by our uh, Patreon supporter and special Seggy guest. Oh, that's right. Yeah. How can I forget? We had some winners. Why don't you read them off? We did get some winners. The winners this week include Mark Ram from Minnesota, Commodore 64 Will, The Rev in Salt Lake City, Brian in Columbus, Jeremy who shot J.R. Rodwan, and Tom Korn in Austria, who writes, didn't even play this game in the arcade. It was located in one of our neighborhood 7-Elevens with two or three other games. We'd ride our fat 80s era skateboards to 7-Eleven, pick up a Big Gulp, back when Big Gulps were considered an absurdly large sized drink, a Charleston Chew, and plunk the rest of our money into this game, trying not to get shot and reach the bottom of the tower. Good times. <laughs> it does sound like good I, times. Again, that's evocative of time and place, much like Chuck Coverley's description of Grilling Bully listened to uh, Bon John Bovey in the quad <laughs> in college. 
we didn't have too many 7-Elevens. There's literally a 7-Eleven on every friggin' street corner in Orlando. But when I was growing up in Clearwater, Florida, we had Circle K's. Okay. So you'd go and you'd get a slush puppy. Sure. And yeah. And not a Charleston Chew, probably more likely a Twix bar or a or a what you call it. Ooh, I like those. Yeah. And, and then and yeah. In the Weatherford, we did not have such chains, but we probably had more convenience stores per capita than was necessarily wise. Uh, Quick yeah. Quick Corner was one, but yeah, they all had two or three uh, arcade games that I would stop by after delivering my newspapers to drop a few quarters in. Anyway. Before we get involved in another long cul-de-sac to- of eighties, <laughs> got enough memories. This show, anyway. Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery arcade sound. If you know it, email us at podcast at sats.com. Ooh, that felt good. Nice. I felt like I crushed it i feel like the lemon water is finally doing its trick the gold medal and stuck in the 80s.com goes to <laughs> Stephen q spears and tune in a few weeks to find out if you're a winner we'll be right back after this commercial break these dolts forgot to choose a winner since i'm a computer i pick commodore 64 will send your mailing address please once there were two bears a big bear i'll have a coca-cola classic and an even bigger bear give me a case coke this bear loves the big, bold taste of Coca-Cola Classic, the original. And this bear loves the light, smooth taste of Coke. Because it goes down real easy. How about another? Yeah, another case. Another case? you got to keep a lot of Coke in the refrigerator. Coke and Coca-Cola Classic. We're back. We have just a few minutes left. I thought it's time to thank our patrons, the new ones. We've... Had a nice little surge of patrons over the last couple of weeks, so we have a few new names to read. Brad, who's a new patron? Our new patrons, I'm not sure if this is a legal name, but we're going to go ahead with it. It's BTN Houston, Michael Hayes, and Chris, who pledged in Euros and did not give a last name. <laughs> we're all continental now, Spearsy. Yeah. yeah. We got English people kinda... on the show. We got people sending Euros in. Living the dream. How does the book end, by the way? Does the book end? Does Roger become a U.S. citizen? He does, yes. Spoiler alert, he does. (laughs) Thank you to all our patrons. We love our Zoom happy hours that we have with you every month. Looking forward to our next one. As always, if you want to join in, any amount is good enough to become a patron. The address is patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you to Roger Bennett for coming on the show. His book, Reborn in the USA, is available wherever you buy books, and I know you know how to read, so think about it. I will say he has implored people looking for a copy to think about supporting a local indie bookstore. He feels very passionately about that. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think any fan of American 80s pop culture will find things to enjoy in this coming-of-age tale. You ought to check it out. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Stay tuned next week. We've got a lot of interviews coming up. I don't want to say who just yet because I don't want to jinx things. But in the meantime, Brad, myself, and newly minted U.S. citizen Roger Bennett, we remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music. And thanks for listening. <laughs>